Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, January 22nd, 2016. This week is episode 398. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me from Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hello, everybody. Hello, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We're also going to have the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli, join us. And, of course, this week's guest is Mr. Jim Pearson. We're going to talk a little bit about changes to two of the most often used and uh, really um, important industry documents, the IICRCS 500, the uh, Professional Water Damage Standard, and the IICRCS 520 the Professional Mold Remediation Standard. Before we do, let's thank our marquee sponsors. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. John Don Products or restoration and abatement contractor shop, visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, and don't forget to check out the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. We've got the new 2016 schedule up, just back from St. Louis actually doing a class. Great group of people out there at uh, United Services. So hello to the United Services group. All right, let's turn it over to Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, text in the answer via your computer. I'm sorry to report. There was no correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, January 22nd, 2016, has been sponsored by Triska, the Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events, Check out our website at trfca.org. Now for today's trivia question. 
What is the French phrase meaning blow of state or an overthrow, the sudden and forced seizure of a state, usually instigated by a small group of the existing government establishment to depose the established regime and replace it with a new ruling body? Back to you, Joe. Okay, Cliff. I also want to mention real quick uh, the the new Triska chapter in South Florida. They're going to be having an event the end of February. We'll put the dates up for that one on our website uh, at at Triska T R S C A dot org. All right. Today's guest uh, is Jim Pearson. Uh, Jim Pearson is uh, coming to us from Billings, Montana. He's a certified mechanical hygienist and the president and CEO of Mold Inspection Services. Also the co-owner of AmeriClean Corporation, which is a full-service disaster restoration business in Billings, Montana. Been there for over 35 years. Jim is also the chairman of the Consensus Body, publishing the IICRC S520 Standard and Reference Guide for Mold Remediation. He's a published author and industry speaker, a past shareholder representative to the IICRC, and he's currently the chairman of the board of the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restorations Council of Associations, the IICRCA, past officer and director of the Restoration Industry Association, decorated Vietnam veteran with seven beautiful grandchildren, and he still plays in that nice rock and roll band. We're going to go check him out this summer. We've got a little music for Jim. Well, there's a this old building, yes, there's a leak in this old building. Well, there's a leak in this old building. We're gonna move to a better home. All right, Jim, do we have you on the line? Yes, sir. Well, I like that rock and that old rock and roll stuff. Good we like to play rock. that too. Good old rock and roll. You play a little country and rock and roll, huh? Yeah, yeah, we play country and western and rock and roll. Yeah, we we do it all. We have to up here. There's only three people that come to the dances. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, let's talk a little standards today. Um, you know, you've been working on standards for quite How long have you been working with the IICRC on the S520 standard? Well, I was invited as a uh, ASCR rep back in 0203. Uh, to uh, to represent uh, ASCR now RIA their interest in this standard making process and it wasn't too long after that that I, I uh, went ahead and uh, and continued to go to it and because they had uh, it decided to stop having rec- recommendations and representation but 203 uh, 004 somewhere in there I was really involved in it and uh, uh, just as a chair of the uh, chapter, chapter chair, that type of thing. But I've been in it quite a while. I've been the chair of the standards now for probably eight years or so. So quite a while. You um, you kind of stepped up, if I recall correctly, when Bob Baker stepped down. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's you know, correct. Yeah, Bob asked me to take over uh, for him, and uh, and I did at that time. Um, well, of course, there was other people involved, too, in making that decision to allow me to do that, but uh, I, I told him I certainly would. There was quite a bit of controversy back then, if I recall correctly. Has that kind of calmed down? Uh, yeah, it has. It really has. We still have a few uh, folks out there that uh, that continue to make their comments, and we continue to try and, 
and be reasonable about it. There's some, you know, it depends on what your interest is. Let's say that your interest is in uh, airflow and particles, basically. That's your primary thing. Well, you might want to have more information about that in a standard, uh, whereas uh, when the consensus body looks at these comments wanting to insert things, uh, we have to consider the, the users of the document and is this really something important or should we focus on something else a little bit more type of thing. So everyone's special interest uh, considerations always come in there. For example, in the beginning, uh, when we first started this document, the uh, uh, we had a couple of, of folks that, that thought that they could maybe make a requirement for inspecting every mold job, even Mrs. Johnson's uh, $500 mold job, which would have added to the cost. It would have doubled it at least. Uh, and uh, insurance at the same time was dropping their coverage for mold. So it ended up being quite a uh, quite a little problem with them. Uh, and and uh, it was, that was a back and forth out in the hallways and things like that on, on whether or not the IEP should have a stronger role in this standard for mold remediation and, and uh, I don't I think we kind of came out uh, with everybody agrees to disagree but this is what it is and that's what we got done and and they were the 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 smaller uh, amount of people that were dissenting but that was that was a big controversy back then and nowadays it's you know like I say just whoever is interested in, in whatever and if it doesn't cover that enough they of course want to make comments and say but what about me type of thing, but I think it's a great document. It's got a real good comprehensive overview of, of mold remediation, how to run the business, and, and everything. Well, let's, let's talk about standards in, in general for a moment first, Jim. I mean, you know, the the S520 in particular has gone, and, and S500, we, we want to talk a little bit about both the water damage standard and the mold standard. Both at one time were IICRC standards, um, and then over time they became ANSI IICRC standards, and then S520 lost that for a while and then got it back here, or working on getting it back. I haven't even looked at Yeah, it's on the title. It's on the cover again. I'll bet you're a happy guy yeah. about that. Oh, golly, I'm really, really pleased about that. Uh, getting ANSI certified is is very important. It's critical to a document, I think, in today's world where you've, you've got to demonstrate that this thing was done in a fair and, uh, fair manner, a balanced manner. There was no undue influence and that type of thing. So absolutely, we, we love being ANSI certified. And, and yeah, we did lose it. We lost it, uh, uh, but, well, probably three years ago now, somewhere in there. I lost our ANSI certification because they were, well, we and they were conducting an audit, going through and making sure that our 2008 version was sufficient. And doggone it, there, uh, there was uh, a couple of people that were not responded to with their comments. And then another fellow voted, he was a consensus body member, and unfortunately he passed away, and, and, and he had voted on the telephone, but he didn't put it in writing, and so they, they got us on that one. So it's mostly procedural errors that they do. They do not, ANSI does not uh, verify or certify the technical aspects of a standard. It's purely, did you follow the process, were you fair and unbalanced type of thing. And we now, um, IICRC now has a new standards, I don't know the, the terminology here. What's Millie's position, Millie Washington? Millie is the standards director. Director, okay. And she comes to us with an ANSI background. I think she worked for ANSI for a while. She's 
very, very good at it. She won't get us in trouble with procedural errors, that's for sure. She's very bright and uh, and uh, very nice woman. She's, she's certainly an asset. Big positive change there with her, and I think she was with AIHA as well. Well, okay, so we're talking about, you're, you're, you're saying how standards are important. Why are they so important? Well, what we want to do is, Basically, all standards are, are to identify the correct procedures and materials that are accepted by specific industries as being prudent or required to improve quality and protect the general public. I mean, if we didn't have standards on bolts, for example, uh, you know, our wheels could be falling off on the road and things. Sometimes they may get a bit restrictive or, or too specific, but I think uh, in general, uh, the amount of fresh airflow, for example, ASHRAE has standards on the amount of fresh air introduced into a building. Without things like that, we would be back in the stone ages with office workers uh, passing out from too much carbon dioxide and, and that sort of thing. So I, th I think that the, uh, uh, that a standard in itself is, 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 well, when you say it sets, when something sets the standard, what we're saying is what is mostly used by people and it's been audited and, and, and uh, verified by independent people and that it's the right way to do things, more or less. So, yeah, standards are important, very, very important. It's a, it's a consensus of the people within that industry that they're kind of self-regulating, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah, and, and they're not the be-all, end-all, of course, but you get a bunch of guys together that have a lot of experience and uh, from the, well, uh, for example, I can speak to the S520 on that as we assembled lawyers, doctors, micro, uh, microbiologists, uh, uh, restorers, remediators, uh, just a, insurance people, just a whole wide range of people to work on uh, the, the big, big change in, uh, that was published in 2008 on the 520. So it's an assemblage of a lot of experts. And then you get a consensus, which means most of the people, and, uh, but usually we like to see something very high, like 90% agree with it, and it ends up becoming a consensus standard on what the right thing to do is. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Sorry, I, I kind of took thanks, over thanks. there again. Yeah, no, no problem. Thanks, Jim, for, for, for joining us. We're, we're very pleased to have you. Thanks Jim, for having me on. Really appreciate it. What would the pros and cons be of a procedural type standard, such as, uh, S520 or S500. Okay, uh, and and I do have some knowledge on this because uh, right now I'm also working on a, uh, uh, a standard uh, with ASHRAE who acquired IAQA in this regard. Uh, their standard for residential assessments, uh, inspections, things like that. And uh, their format is a bit different than a procedural uh, standard Theirs is shells. Everything is a shell. Everything must be this way. There is no room for negotiation, contemplation, or, you know, descriptions on well, sometimes you can do it this way or sometimes that way. They're very specific, the ANSI standards. And, it's, and so it's kind of difficult for us to convert our uh, consensus standard on in residential inspections. Hard to convert that to the standard that was all shells and no shoulds. And we'll get into some trigger words here later on in the conversation and what they mean. But in answer to your question, Cliff, and thanks for, for allowing me to blab here, um, a procedural standard is information based on the experience, research, and principles, reliable principles that, that, that uh, most people do. It's not an instruction guide. But, boy, it has a wealth of information that, that is very useful to any 
uh, remediation and restoration business. It's not a law or regulation, and it doesn't uh, doesn't have to be followed. Frankly, it's it's not a law, but guaranteed, if you uh, have a procedural standard and do not adhere to it, you're probably going to lose in a court battle if the industry does have some sort of standard and you blatantly disregard it. The jury's going to rule against you, even though it doesn't have the force of law. It's pretty darn close. I got a text saying, I don't know, I I slipped away for a moment. Um, it says acquired IAQA. I guess that was more of a, uh, uh, what did they call that? Um, can't remember what they call it. Uh, I, I guess the relationship between the two, like a merger. Yeah, it was more like they had another word for it. It'll come to me, but it, they didn't acquire them. I, I think a guy would have been happy to be acquired. No, I mean they would have been happy to get some money out of the deal. Uh, you you know when you acquire something, you you assume it's like a a payment. Well, they for acquired the, standard, is what they did. They acquired uh, what we were writing uh, okay. through IESO, which was part of IAQA. And you, which which one of those are you working on? I'm working on the residential assessment standard. Okay. Uh, going and looking for uh, signs of uh, mold damage, water damage, uh, events conducive to mold growth, things like that. A big change. In other words, I trainer. Was it a big change sure. going from ISO to uh, to ASHRAE? I'm sorry, say that again. Was it a big change going from doing that for IESO and IAQA to an ASHRAE standard? Yes, absolutely. We were following procedures that basically that I had learned uh, by working on uh, the ISCRC standard, and uh, which are for procedural standards. And uh, we we did a bang up job of this document that was finished and ready to go to review. And then right at that time, um, Ashray kind of took over and said, "No, no, 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 this isn't going to work. There's there's other trigger words in there. We only use the word shell." And uh, so they kind of kind of put a stopping point on us now while we regroup and figure it all out and decide how we're going to proceed in the future. That's why ANSI standards take so damn long, and, um, uh, you know, RC standards take a long time, too, but at least they're a little less bureaucratic heavy, I think, and um, and we can produce them faster. We're much more uh, uh, light on our feet as far as reacting and responding to the industry. Hmm. So, yeah, it was a big change, big change for us. In fact, there were some that were very, very upset about it because it, it meant that all that seven years of hard work was going to have to be redone, but uh, that's the way the chips fall, I guess. Yeah. Cliff, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, um, I, Jimmy actually answered the question that I was going to ask. Uh, he clarified uh, the, the, um, the, um, the ASHRAE uh, shell. That oh, okay. It's a more bureaucratic process. So he actually answered the question, so and they, I can give you, you the ball back. You mentioned trigger words, uh, Jim. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that terminology, the trigger words. Okay, okay. But, but before I do that, I, I, I wanted to make sure that everyone understood, the listeners understood what the standard of care means to to us. And it, what it is, is it's what businesses use as practices that are common to reasonably prudent members of the trade recognize the industry as qualified and competent. Many of us are. In fact, all members, probably all certified firms are probably qualified and, comp and competent. So it's, it, but I just wanted to stress, this is not a best practice document, okay, uh, that has consistently shown results superior 
and used as a benchmark. And it's not state-of-the-art, which is the highest level of general development. This is a procedural standard, a standard of care that most people would take with their, uh, with their customers now. Trigger words are words that have been identified in the document, shall, should, and recommended are the trigger words that we use, and they're used to compare and contrast the different levels of importance attached to certain practices and procedures. So when you use the word shall, in the, in the, in the old standard it was must, but uh, ANSI wants us to use their words, so we changed the shall. When shall is used in the 520 or the 500 or any standard that, I, uh, that IFCRC puts out, it means the practice or procedure is mandatory due to natural law or regulatory requirement. And it's a component of the accepted standard of care to be followed. So a regulatory requirement might, regulatory requirement might be uh, OSHA requiring uh, employers to make sure that their employees are protected with respirators and things like that. There, there, that might not be a very good example, but you, you get my point. The term shell is used for a mandatory uh, requirement, natural law or regulatory. Should, by the way, shall, you better do it or you're going to lose in court. Should used to be highly recommended. And when the, we use the word should, it means that this practice or procedure is a component of the accepted standard of care, but it's not mandatory by regulatory requirements. You see that difference there. Mm -hmm. And then recommended is the lower level, lowest level, and it means that the practice or procedure is advised or suggested to the reader, but it's not a component of the accepted standard of care. So you see there's a difference there, too. It's not part of the standard of care, whereas shall and should definitely are components of the standard of care. And you were saying earlier, I believe, that ASHRAE would not use all three of those terms. They would just use shall. Yep. They want to know what's required, and that's it. And they if, don't want any discussion. They don't want any suppositions. They don't, they don't want to... Uh, uh, get off into the weeds, I guess, on anything that's not right. I mean, naturally, well, an ASHRAE standard on bolts would have to be so many threads per inch and so so many burrs removed and certain kind of material and all that. And those are all shells. They shall be of this material. They shall be of this grade. They shall be this threads per inch and, and that sort of thing. And I can see why they, they do it like that. But in a standard, especially a standard that covers something that, that that, that appears to be brand new to most of us, and that would be mold remediation or, or, or health effects of mold and the issues that are not completely defined well yet. I mean, the jury's still out on a lot of things uh, regarding mold and health impacts and exposure levels and things like that. So in a standard like that, a, a procedural standard like that, uh, there's a lot of we don't have enough evidence yet to decide if mycotoxins are bad for people or whatever. So you can see that, that, that to do an ASHRAE standard, you got to change everything just to shell because this is the way they do it, and they've been doing it that way for years, and this is the right too. In mold, we've got a lot of variables involved, water damage and all that. A lot of variables come in, and the, and the remediator or restorer does have the discretion to do, it, uh, to do the work in accordance with what he thinks is right. We don't take that right away from the, uh, from the restorer or the remediator. Now, I guess what I'm trying to also get at is neither way is necessarily right or wrong. And as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, ASHRAE standards have shall in them oftentimes because they're intended to be written to be adopted into code. 
whereas the IICRC standards are not necessarily written as intended to be adopted into code. Exactly. That, that's why I made a comment that the standard is, is not a legal requirement. Right. Uh, be, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, I just want to point out that um, John, thank you, John Lapoter, uh printed the ASHRAE acquired the ANSI project initiation notification from IAQA ISO during the IAQA ASHRAE merger was the term I was looking for. So um, that's that's important. All right, we're close to halftime. Before we go to halftime. Uh, yeah, we got a, we got another five minutes before we go to halftime, Jim. Let's let's hit on the S five hundred first, the professional water damage standard. We'll save the second half of the show for specifics about changes to the professional mold remediation standard. Give us a couple of highlights from the professional water damage restoration standard, the S five hundred, with respect to changes in the newest version of that document. Okay, and I, I know that, that most of the, in fact, I'll bet all of the listeners uh, today and in future uh, uh, recordings of the program understand that there have been, has been some great angst with the S500 water damage standard. Several years ago, uh, efforts were made to identify how many pieces of equipment to get the job done should be required. Well, unfortunately, it appeared to be the minimum, and the insurance companies grabbed onto that and started specifying that you can only use so many air movers per lineal foot or whatever, and it just wasn't enough to do the job for most of us in special situations. So I would say that uh, the class, well, the water intrusion classes, they have different classes on it, not, not instructional classes, I'm talking about classes of water, were redefined for clearer estimating of the evaporation load of a building, which is important. Um, uh, Inspection and structural restoration chapters were restructured to show it actually to be reflective of the steps taken in an actual project, so it was easier to follow. Uh, we also took a lot of information uh, and consolidated in, into tables of materials and assemblies, which was kind of uh, uh, helpful where they could just look it up. And then I think the big one was we created that rationale for air movement placement based on the amount of wet affected areas really hard. Every every water loss is different. Every single one of them is different. And and the restorer has to have the latitude to use his own abilities and equipment and tools and, and instruments to do the best job for the client. So uh, we've, we've re rewritten that portion to, uh, to, to give a good rationale for the placement, uh, depending on how much is actually wet. Uh, Third-party references were strengthened in the billing science, uh, microbiology, psychometrics, and the drying technology chapters. Uh, pick the references up in that. And, you know, if your listeners wanted to actually find out a lot more about this, there's a good article in here uh, in the um, uh, journal, our, our, our own ICRC journal, uh, that uh, has a multi-page article by Mickey Lee on the S500 and some of the changes. Now, I've got one coming out next month in uh, in the, the journal on the 520, and if you really want to know more about it, probably these two articles will be the very best source of it because there's a lot of a lot of words, a lot of information there. But we're we're real pleased with both standards. They both came out about the same time, and we're we're pumped that uh, that this new information is getting out there and and helping the uh, our uh, our fellow restorers out there. 
Jim, one question, I think, before halftime. You know, I think one of the, you know, big issues around the S500 and the angst uh, created by it was with, you know, third-party administrators who were brought in to, you know, look at the bills of water damage restores, and, you know, they would make payment adjustments and, and, and so on and so forth. So it was a real big issue on the water side. Have third-party administrators been an issue on the mold side? You know, not to my knowledge. Uh, the only third parties we are concerned with is the third party that comes in that's independent, that tests and samples our work and gives us the post-remediation verification. Uh, but as far as third parties trying to sell mold for us, you know, you get the typical ones that are the, they just go out and they look for, they want to advertise and they want to hook you up with people who need mold remediation. But as far as an organized approach like uh, like this code, uh, well, code yeah, blue or whatever, hate to even advertise for them. I don't use them. I, I won't use them. I refuse to use them um, uh, because they got a place. Don't get me wrong. Their place is for the 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 more uh, the lesser developed companies that get into water damage and they want to do it right. They haven't had any classes yet or anything. So they get the business, and then Code Blue can come in and say, all right, send me the contract, send us your readings every day, send us your pictures, and we'll monitor this project, and then we'll negotiate the bill, and we'll cut you back on what you're entitled to have according to Xactimate and all that. And it may be beneficial. In fact, I know it's beneficial for the insurance companies because they get this, this proof of this third party uh, kind of watching them and monitoring them. But the, the more uh, reliable, or no, not reliable, the more... Uh, Mature businesses that are more well-developed uh, don't need these third-party things. And they just add one more layer that takes a lot more money out of the job. All right, let's... Fair uh, enough. Yeah, it's, that's perfect. We're going to break for our halftime, thank our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to go into some more specifics about the S520, the professional mold standard. And then I think what we should do, uh, Cliff, is bring on... Howie Wolf or um, Mickey Lee, and, and talk more about the S500 on a future show. That sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. We'll be right back with our guest, Mr. Jim Pearson. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www particlesplus.com. Count on us. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop, visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
IAQ.net, and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, we're back. Second half of our interview, Jim Pearson, standards chair for the well, the, the um, committee chair for the S520 standard. Uh, Jim, let's, let's talk a little bit about some more specifics on the S520. The first thing is just the general look of the document. Um, it's been split into two separate documents. Now, you've got the standard in one document and the reference guide in another document. What was the intent behind that? Well, you know, uh, primarily this, uh, the standard and reference guide, the way we do it is we write the book, right? We write the book on all the chapters and everything that we want to say about mold, for example, in this case. And, and then we go through the, the book, or the reference guide, and we watch for trigger words, right? So here comes a shell. Well, we grab that sentence, paragraph, or whatever, make sure that it's, it's, you know, complete enough to be understood, and move that into the standard. So the standard language is much, uh, the book in the standard, or the standard portion is less voluminous uh, than the book itself, the reference guide. So once we've extracted that and put it in the same book, we've got, like, the colored pages, the standard, much smaller than the reference guide, and it's almost like an executive summary, uh, a summary of all the shells, shoulds, and recommendeds. The other information in the reference guide that we took it from is amplifying information to support those statements made in the standard. Well, uh, in going through the ANSI process, review process, said, you know you don't have to have that uh, reference guide go through the process too, just the standard. Thus, we split them into two. You've got the standard, which is quite accessible uh, and, and smaller to carry around, and then we have the reference guides. But it's easier for us to get stand, uh, ANSI approval with the smaller document if they just approve the standard itself instead of the other. And I think all of the standards will go this direction too. We're the first one to split it. And um, uh, we just think it's going to be easier to use for the um, for the remediators and uh, easier to take through an ANSI review. Maybe a little question. less confusion, uh, too. Go ahead, Cliff. I, I have a question, Jim. I, I really didn't know that. And you know, I think what's striking to me is that, you know, what ANSI looks for is, you know, bias and weight and, you know, following their processes and following, you know, their procedures and, you know, that protects the public and, and, you know, the public at large. Uh, I was unaware that they, that, that they didn't do that in this reference guide. So essentially the reference guide can have information in it that's biased or, you know, improperly weighted. And um, ANSI really doesn't know about that. Um, you, know, if you, you know, if you take up 10 pages in the document or, or whatever, because, you know, someone was very persuasive that, you know, that was on the committee. And I think, unfortunately, the public doesn't know the difference. Is there some sort of notation uh, on the reference guide that says, uh, you know, there's conjecture in here and, you know, that this is not consensus? Well, actually, the, cons the reference guide is consensus. That's the one we got consensus on. 
And then we extracted all the trigger words out of it and made a standard. So everything that's in the standard comes from the reference guide. And there are no additional things uh, that are put in after it's been extracted, for example. So I don't think that would be a concern of having uh, the reference guide having conflicting information or be biased or anything like that because what they did, I mean, what we come up with with the standard without running it through ANSI, and we haven't done that yet. The standard and reference guide did go through, I believe, through ANSI. I'm not sure about that, but it, to my understanding. And uh, when it goes to them, the standard, it's part of the reference guide. They must be considered in tandem and taken in their entirety, but I, I don't you know, it's possible. I never thought about that, Cliff, but it's possible that uh, in the reference guide there was some bias and we extracted the standard out of it. But, boy, I don't think that can be because the consensus body, the group of people who do these uh, for the 520, uh, are all uh, bound by this ANSI process. So we, we can't represent. What they're talking about is having, say, three or four people from one company on there that would push to get something through. And again, ANSI doesn't look at the, technolo at the technology or the procedures. They just look at how we did it administratively. Did we do it properly and, uh, and make sure we were fair and unbalanced in our methodology? Yeah, but what they're, Jim, I think, but what they're looking at is what actually goes into the standard as being fair and being, and following their process. And I, I guess what my question is, is if the two documents have to be used in tandem, it would seem to me that they should be approved by ANSI in tandem. And I think you said that they were, and then I think that you said that they weren't. And I, I'm just kind of confused. Well, so, let me, let me. Uh, Clarify the ANSI label is not on the reference guide. Now I don't know if that means they didn't look at it or well they don't look at any of these. They look at the process, not the standard or the reference guide, either one. Right. Right. They don't care what's in it. They just want to make sure that it was fairly done. Now really. You know you know, a lot of people have a mistaken idea that, that ANSI means that this information is valid. And that's not true. All I understand to make sure we follow now, the ISCRC is uh, a standards producer. We're, we're uh, blessed under ANSI to do ANSI standards, develop ANSI standards. And um, all of the things that we put in there are, are not subject to ANSI review. It's just how did we do it? Did we have enough balance? Was it fair? Were people allowed to uh, do a formal uh, protest to anything, have a formal hearing and a review because they were shut out, that type of thing. There's, there's all kinds of recourse for people who think that they've been done wrong in writing the standard. And the threat that they hold over our heads as a consensus body is you better be as fair and impartial as you can, or they'll use ANSI as a club. Now, let me, let me get the big question, though, Jim. If I go to court, I'm, in a, I'm a mold remediation contractor, let's say, one of these folks that I work with on a regular basis. They go to court, and um, they're told, you know, they, they, let's say they claim to have followed the IICRC S520, and they've done a good job of following the standard, but then someone pulls out the reference guide and says, yeah, you, you follow the standard here, but did you know in the reference guide it says you should do X, Y, or Z? Is that possible, or is it, you know, which do we put on the stand if we ever go to court, or is it both? The standard. The standard, the standard. Itself. That, 
obviously, clearly. The reference guide is just amplifying information that supports the standard. There should be nothing in either document that conflicts with each other. They should be the same as far as, as the information in them. One is just more voluminous, may have more tables, may have more drawings and pictures and things like that, and more description as to why we decided this should be a shell. But, uh, but basically, they're the same thing, remembering that it's extracted directly from the reference guide. So, yeah, it's the standard that they're going to stick you on, and the standard had better reflect that reference guide. Now, let's, let's go to another quick. I know that, you know, I was on the, I'm on, I'm still on the board of IICRC. Sometimes I wonder why, but I'm still there. And um, I'm wondering, I know that when this was pulled, ANSI was pulled, we wanted to get it back up as quick as possible with an ANSI label on it, obviously. I mean, we'd be foolish not to. Did that um, lessen the amount of changes that would have been made in the document? It seems like there weren't a great many changes, or am I mistaken? Well, actually, what happened is, you know, every five years our standards are reviewed, uh, and from from ANSI, and and uh, and we undergo revisions on them anyway every five years just to make sure they're up to date and current. Uh, well, we were a little late with our five year goal on the uh, on the five twenty, um, but we we went ahead and did it. We said, okay, well, ANSI says, well, we don't think your procedures are correct, so we voluntarily. Uh, gave up our ANSI certification, and that was one of the primary motivators for going through and redoing the standards. There are not a lot of changes in the document. Like our standards chair, Howie Wolf, said, he said, look, guys, this document is correct. There's nothing technically wrong with it. It There could be some clarifications and improvements, of course. You can always have improvements and enhancements, and there's really no new... Uh, technology for mold remediation that was sufficient to warrant a remake of the standard. So it was primarily done to get our ANSI certification back, and uh, and that that's kind of why we were doing it. Not a lot of changes. The document's correct. We just made it a little bit better. Where are the changes uh, that that did occur? Obviously, you've had some. Where where are the key changes, Jim? Well, we try to hide them all, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, like I say, there there weren't a lot of changes. We did, Dave Dibdahl did, uh, uh, he's an insurance man, Section 9, and risk management, who did a lot of work in this thing because he discovered that, that believe it or not, most re- remediation contractors don't have the right insurance coverage to protect them, hmm. right? This, this was a shocker, to, and I don't I still don't think the industry has caught on. And he pounded the table for years about uh, we're not sufficiently covered for, for mold work. And he was right. So he, uh, we did a lot of changes and improvements to the insurance uh, and risk management section in, in the document, in administration. And uh, we got reaccredited. That's a good change for us. Um, of course, we went through the references and definitions and updated the, and we made complex language more clear. I think the big ones might be, well, more global harmonization uh, efforts toward making sure that we had centigrade and, and uh, Fahrenheit and all that okay. and uh, the decimal system. Uh, there are enhanced rules for negative pressure containments for sensitive environments like daycare, <coughs> healthcare facilities, that sort of thing. I'm glad you uh, brought that. Go, go ahead. We specify the use of alarmed or alert pressure differential monitors with data logging. We're saying that should be used. Uh, 
and placing multiple AFDs on different circuits because if a, if a breaker pops on your AFD and it goes down, you've got nothing for a backup and in a critical area that could be bad. You were going to say? No, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of the things I did pick out to, to ask you about, and that was um, using uh, documenting pressure differentials because if, if I'm not mistaken, I looked at it quickly, that was not in there prior and it was only added for sensitive uh, situations, like you say, healthcare, et cetera. Right, right. And now, we're not requiring data logging because that's going to impose quite an expense on a lot of smaller remediators, but we are requiring multiple AFDs on separate electrical circuits if they have a failure, uh, and that they should take records of the pressure differential. Uh, with the data logging and, the, and that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, they don't have to use an automatic data logger. They can just use a, a, a small instrument that says here's what it is now and just keep records of it. But that's only on uh, sensitive-type jobs. On the on the typical job, you still do not require any pressure differential monitoring? Right, right. Okay. It would be nice if you did it, but it's not a requirement, no. Yeah, I find, I've always found that interesting in this in this standard and in this industry. Um, you know, coming from the asbestos world, that was the most important thing we did on a daily basis. We we monitored and verified the pressure differential, so that um, you know we could tell the building owner when we were done that we had contained the area and kept the contaminants in that area, and they hadn't escaped to the rest of the building. And I find that. Um, Disaster restoration contractors and, and mold remediation contractors almost never do that. Um, some do, but it's it's pretty darn rare. And nowadays, it's not that expensive. You can get a, a nice little Dwyer manometer for about, you know, 300 bucks these days and put it up at data logs. It does, you know, exactly what you need. So um, I'll be curious to see how you, how you guys decide to handle that in any future revisions. Right. Well, you know something. I, I am going to make a statement here that might get me in trouble. Now everybody's listening, right? Yeah. Uh, what I'd like to say is that asbestos is a long way away from mold as far as being a hazard. Asbestos doesn't float around in the air all the time everywhere, and mold does. It's everywhere. It's outside, inside, and all that. So I believe that there should be less stringent requirements on dealing with mold. I don't think we ought to go out and make a bunch of people sick. But uh, but I think that the requirements are plenty strong enough uh, right now as it is. Okay, that's fair enough. Uh, we may have to agree to disagree on that one. But and and I don't. I'm not even worried about the health issue so much. Although I think it's it's important. I'm worried about our contractors' liability. Um, I, I suspect that it would help them a great deal to document pressure differentials on these projects. Uh, I think that's more important than, for instance, the documentation that is part of the required documentation. This has always driven me crazy. Maybe you can help me with why this is in there. 9.3.2, detailed worker activity logs, including a description of who did what, when, where, how, and for what duration, including entry and exit logs, which I understand. I never could understand why a supervisor needed to spend time describing in detail uh, who did what, when, where, how, and for what duration. That that always drove me crazy, and I know most of them, 95% don't do it. They ever get pulled into court and somebody says, well, did you do this? Um, they're not going to look good. Why, why is that in there, Jim? Do you know? Yes, um, and, and there, there's a couple of issues here. 
first of all, we take we take records. We take good 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 records. Uh, we don't go overboard on it. Maybe a paragraph. We've got to describe what we're doing each day, just for our own uh, edification, so we know what we've done. Um, but if you ever get in court, which is not an unlikely situation, and you're pulled in, they're going to subpoena all of these documents and things. And if you didn't even keep track of who was going in and out, or who you had working that day, and what they did, and why you made decisions, you're probably going to lose. And you have to keep good records on the thing. And I'm not saying negative or uh, uh, recording of negative pressures in your uh, containment is not important. Sure, it's important. But I didn't think that the standard should make it an absolute requirement. Also, this being a consensus body standard of, of good men writing this and women writing this document, we find that sometimes people get a little carried away. At one point, we had all kinds of signage with certain height letters and all this that had to say mold remediation in progress, keep out, and everything had to be signed. In fact, you had to have signs at the entrance to the building and all that, like they do with lead. Mm-hmm. And we felt that was a bit much okay. because mold is ubiquitous. It's not like lead and it's not like asbestos. It's not quite as dangerous, in my opinion. Well, fair enough. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I thought that it was interesting. We went into that detail on every worker and what they did and what duration and all that, but we didn't, um, we didn't have pressure differentials required. But anyway, um, that was that was kind of pushed by a fellow that uh, that is very opinionated and had to get to the nth degree on everything he wrote. So uh, it was correct. <laughs> so we couldn't really toss it out. But that you know, it does have a personality. The standard has a personality based on the people who wrote it. Yeah, I agree. There's another one. Let me get another one real quick because I know Cliff will love this one. Um, Five point eight point one point one states for thoroughly clean, non-porous building materials. Antimicrobials are generally not needed, um, and I'm just curious: is there a reference for that? I mean, and, and how do you handle that in the standard? Or do you do you point back to references like you know the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists says that um, for non-porous, thoroughly clean materials, you don't generally need an antimicrobial. Right. That's where we get that information is from other published, peer-reviewed, uh, ANSI-certified, whatever documents. Uh, and there are some good ones out there that have been for a long time. And, uh, and we try to, to replicate a lot of what they've come up with. And, and yeah, just think about this. If you have a non-porous material, go ahead. I, I wasn't saying anything. Okay. If you, if you have it, let's take a Formica countertop that's pretty much non-porous or a stainless steel countertop, and you clean that thing, why would you put antimicrobials on it? Remembering this is a mold standard, not a bacteria standard. So uh, the, you get what I mean? I mean, I, I here's the problem. Antimicrobials have been misused. They're spraying right. them on everything all the time. They're not rinsing after they're done. They're not using them in accordance with the, uh, with the instructions on the product. And therefore, they're breaking EPA law that says, you know, you must follow the label directions and on requirements. So they think that these biocides or antimicrobials are, which are the same thing, are something that should be sprayed all over the place. And, and I'm saying, no, I don't think, I think we can overuse those things. Let's just get it clean. People were spraying mold with uh, bleach and antimicrobials thinking they could kill it and that would solve the problem. And, of course, the basic premise and principle of mold remediation in the standard is physical removal, complete physical removal of the mold. 
That way you don't have to use biocides. We wanted to try and prevent people from going in, spraying it with bleach, and then covering it up with some kills and, and saying that they're done because they're not. Sure. Understood. Understood. Um, Cliff, before I hit one more, anything you wanted to talk or touch on? Um, I'm trying to think of which one. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that bothered me about previous editions uh, of the the standard gym was a chart that was actually uh, in the document. It was a drawing, and and it was a drawing that talked about gray water. And the drawing said that over a period of time, gray water became black water. Is that chart is that chart still in the document? It's not in the uh, S five twenty. I don't know if it still remains in the five hundred. Um, but the, the, I don't think we deleted any charts out of it. But and you know what? I'm I'm sorry. I got to confess that I can't put my finger on it right now. But I know what you're talking about, and and I believe that I can speak for myself that if you have gray water uh, that that has passed through uh, carpeting and dirt and soil. And, and bacteria and all that, it gets to a certain point that, yeah, it could very well be considered a Category 3 or black water uh, class because it's uh, uh, it's pretty nasty and it's probably got a lot of amplified bacteria in it. So I guess that it does. I mean, I really haven't thought about that much, but it made sense to me that, that it, uh, even fresh water coming out of a faucet gets on the carpet and flows pretty soon it becomes Category 2, and after a couple of weeks, Everything's rotten there, so that water that's there is full of bacteria, full of mold, full of whatever. So that would be kind of a, a, a black water situation. I could be wrong. Let me um, let's get to because we've got to go to a roundup and get um, get Pete in here. But before we do, I want to ask a, a fundamental question on the S five twenty, Jim. S five twenty was a fundamental shift away from using square footage. And went yep. toward these category one, category two, category three. And um, I know we've got someone listening who, who at, at least in the past, has expressed to me um, that really, when we, we're done with the mold remediation, we don't really have um, con- condition one. I'm sorry, condition one, condition two, condition three. That we're beyond condition one. We've cleaned it beyond normal fungal ecology. Was there any consideration given to? adding another condition or changing the condition one, two, three um, uh, definitions at all? Yes, we had thought about it, talked about it. We didn't write about it, though. Uh, And that would have been a category saying, uh, all right, this is uh, the condition, I mean. There would be a, a condition where it's cleaner than condition one, right? Right. And uh, it was proposed by one of the guys we should actually have number four or number point five that says, yeah, you uh, you uh, you are cleaning beyond what you had before, so you're actually cleaner than condition one. But all our goal is is to get to condition one, which is what it is outside, what it is in the next house over that's the same type of structure, that type of thing. Again, this ubiquitousness of mold, the fact that it is everywhere, and, and only certain amounts, large amounts, can affect only some people, and we don't really know who those people are. They've got compromised immune systems. There are so many variables that I doubt we'll ever get maximum permissible exposure levels on it. Well, maybe someday in the future, but it's, it's very difficult. And, and I, think that it, I think that 
personally, that, that we, there has been some overreaching in uh, deciding just how serious this mold contamination issue is. And yeah, the 100 square feet, who in the hell knows what 100 square feet is anyway, unless you take your tape measure out and measure it. And that doesn't matter because behind the wall is always worse than in front of the wall. So we threw that out and said, no, if it's contaminated, you gotta, it's got, if it's adjacent settled spores in an adjacent area, you've got to take care of that. And if it's a normal fungal environment, leave it alone type of thing because there's a limit. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate, um, first of all, your willingness to join us, and secondly, to answer some of these questions, because, you know, they're not easy questions, and, and you didn't wave a magic wand and write this all by yourself. Obviously, you've got to get consensus, um, but I was just curious if there was any thoughts on, on changing that. There's one other I have, but I'll save that for my final question. Um, there you go. Condition zero. How about that one? Condition zero equal clearance criteria. Let's think about that on the next, uh, the next version. But anyway, um, let's go to the roundup. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw hide. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw All right, Pete, we have you on the line, the Global Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Yeah, hey, guys. How you doing today, man? I enjoyed the conversation and the interview. I, I forgot I forgot how those guys from Montana, you know, so ambidextrous and flexible, they can just get, they can, they can bend it to me, take the foot, and put it right right at the edge of the mouth, and it's fit <laughs> with such ease. You know, I love it with Jim Preston to come, and he said, well, I might be ready to stick my foot in my mouth again here, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Sir Linton, you actually did stick your foot in your mouth, and uh, I, I, and uh, I, I am, I'm saying that for my last comment. Um, I, what I want to say is, Preston uh, uh, Joe, you made a comment that it looks like uh, this interview with Jim has uh, created, uh, you know, a follow-up uh, show with, uh, you know, maybe with Howie or uh, Mickey. Well, there's another follow-up show I think that you, that that, he's gonna, that you're going to have to do too. But I, I'll wait to say that. But listen, in all seriousness, um, I enjoyed the interview. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of good stuff going on with the standard setting process now with the S500, the, uh, the S520. You know, as um, you move, as the industry kind of moves towards uh, separating the the reference guide, something Cliff, myself, and many others have advocated for a long time. Uh, let the standard be the standard, and if, if and when they do a reference guide, you know, that, uh, that's kind of a different process. It doesn't go through the answer. You could maybe have that quote-unquote emotional type language in there where the standard should really be kind of, you know, the nuts and bolts kind of stuff and uh, be scientifically based. Um, I think two of the other things that we've always advocated, Cliff and myself for sure, is that, that um, the possibility of moving towards the performance-based model versus a prescriptive or procedural model and then the other thing is to really allow for dissenting viewpoint opinion. You know, uh, Jim made a comment, you know, we, we try to get 90%. Well, I mean, look, dissensus strictly means, uh, you know, the way Ben Franklin uh, told the 13 colonies, you know, we either, we either hang together or we hang separately. And all the consensus means is that everyone has a right to be heard. All the myths, you have to have material interested parties, and then decisions are made. Um, you know, sometimes certain decisions are made unanimously at a much higher percent, others aren't. But I, the reason I bring that up is, um, is you know, in the, in the when I was very actively involved in the second S500 in the late 90s, um, 
we actually uh, had a couple of these scientific types that had been recruited back in the day that, that did a lot of really good work in there. And um, one gentleman in particular, uh, when it came time to, he asked about the dissenting opinion, and uh, we talked about it, and it was rejected, and we said, we don't have that. And he said, well, he didn't want to be listed on the committee or have his name in the document. And he, in particular, this one guy, did a lot of expert witness work. And people that do that, and a lot of experts, you know, would participate in the standards, they do not want to have something in print that would say that they agreed to a part of a process that could be used against them in a deposition. So what he had told me was, and over the years, you know, we've advocated for this and explained this, he said, when you do that, he says, and allow for the dissenting or what's called a minority viewpoint, a minority opinion, he said, what will happen is um, that will allow a lot of these other experts to say, hey, we agree with this, but we don't agree with that. Um, you know, now people can take the task and maybe have a different viewpoint, that's fine. But I, I had a conversation with Jeremy Reitz about that, you know, with all the commotion that he raised, uh, you know, around the air mover things, which extended, you know, four four versions of the S-500. And I, I told Mickey and I told some of the other committee members, I said, you know, if we actually had that policy and if that was the case, probably after the second go-around, that document could have been published in a make of a year to almost two years off that extended time to do it. You know, if enough people are there, you put a minority opinion and say, hey, yeah, we think it's great, but, but, can you do it like that? Um, if that didn't happen and we don't have a reference guide uh, anymore, you know, uh, people, uh, they can do white papers, position papers. There's a lot of ways you can handle that, but I, I do think it, it went a little bit too far in that point to extend it. And at some point I expressed, I think, in a prior show that I think it was a little embarrassing for the industry that, um, you know, that it, that it, it kind of went that route. So for you know whatever whatever it's the whatever it's worth, I mean those are those are you know some ideas that that, that I have uh, regarding all of that. Um, I think that um, uh, the uh, generally speaking, um, you know we're in very dynamic times. The uh, um, I just published on a, on the RAA website a e-blast and went out yesterday. And we're articulating the language now, but we are going to have a, a, an S-500 panel at the REA convention in Orlando in March. It's going to be a unique and a different panel, not the same kind of panels or the same kind of presentations that's been going around the country now. And uh, I know there's uh, going to be three done in Canada, and I know I think the IHCRC is going to have one for all the instructors in February in Vegas at the Global Resource Center. You know, Mickey did probably uh, several presentations at the Crawford Connections last June. Um, and that was more, you know, really kind of going over the document, highlighting a lot of the key changes. There was discussion about the air movement stuff and things like that. But I, I talked with Mickey about this, and um, we want to take a little bit of different approach. Mickey's obviously going to be on the panel, kind of representing the consensus viewpoint. We're going to have a legal perspective with the well-known attorney Michael Bowden. We're going to have a um, contractor's perspective on use and application with Darren Foote, who's IICRC trainer, and he's, a, he's one of the primary trainers for Belfort. So that's contractor perspective from something like Belfort, how they use it, how they apply it, how they, you know, if you look at the needs of the project and apply the standard in that way, that, you know, it, it would normally benefit all the, the stakeholders of the water loss. And finally, we're going to have Ed Jones on there from Code Blue. So that kind of brings me to my point here about, the, about Mr. Jim sticking his foot in his mouth. He made some comments about Code Blue, which um, I think... Uh, you know, I, 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 the founder of Code Blue, Paul Gross, uh, had a very entertaining interview, uh, a show on here um, uh, quite a few years ago. And uh, maybe it's time to uh, to bring Code Blue back and, uh, you know, get that TPA perspective. 
um, on how they use, how they apply the standard, you know, how they operate in the marketplace. One of the things with Code Blue and um, and maybe the TPAs and some of these carriers, but Code Blue in particular, since they specialize specialize on water mitigation claims, they actually use the standard to establish scope for the work. Now, Jim, you talked about the dynamic as uh, I think maybe more as a business owner and a contractor, and whether you want to work with TPAs and work with Code Blue or not, that's your a business decision. But if you if you peel all that away, they actually use the document to um, uh, to establish scope with the losses that they handle, with either contractors that are on their list or contractors that happen to get jobs that are not on the list, but they have to you know, negotiate or work with them because one of their carrier clients you know, handled that claim and the contractor may have already been on there. And they try to match what the standard says the scope of work that's being done. The contractors that they've already pre-agreed to, that's pretty that's much... That's what we... We follow the standard. Why do we need a third layer in there Driving costs up and cutting us short on our profits. Well, that's that's actually a different discussion, but the fact of the matter is, I don't know that that's any different than a normal adjuster being on a claim. I mean, there's still always oh, an adjuster on a claim. Use code Blue, they use a local adjuster, an independent, and then they use the adjuster back at the home office, and there's so many layers in there that it's crazy. I'm in a well, rural area, and I'm telling you what, I won't use Code Blue. I just refuse to take their calls now because we do a great job and we follow the standards. Right. Well, you said something that changes the dynamic because I'm unaware of. Most of the TPA models, there isn't a local adjuster and a TPA. Normally, there is either a local adjuster or a TPA, and then and then whoever's back at home office. If it's If it's a staff adjuster, he is the guy. Is an independent adjuster local, and he's probably reporting to a staff guy back at the carrier. But most of the TPAs deal with the adjuster back home, and in effect, they they kind of serve as an adjuster, if you would, in that regard. And that unto itself can be controversial. But in, in any case, uh, I guess the main point is is that um, that's why we're having those kind of things on the program, so that the people have a chance to explain it. Everyone has their viewpoint. And quite frankly, that that's the role and the purpose of an association is that you. You provide a, a platform and a venue for the members to, to voice their opinions and exchange ideas. That's why people come to associations to do together what they yeah. can't do individually. Yeah, I always like to follow the money and see who's the gold sponsor, right? Who's paying the money to get their name in there and, and to make money off of the association? <laughs> so do you really believe that? Well, it's, it's not Code Blue. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, they may have some sponsorship, but the two key sponsors this year for the event was long, long standing is Sunbelt. Kenny Rothmo's done, done a great interview here on the. Well, I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing them. It's just that there are two kinds of people. There's volunteers that do standards and stuff and spend thousands of hours for free, and then there's those who get on these things and get on these companies trying to make money, and it's okay to make money. That's why I'm in business, too. But when you start confusing them and, and showing them presentations that endorse certain products and things, that's wrong, Pete. In my opinion, that's just... But, Jim, you're jumping to conclusions here. I mean, let me show you. The other sponsor this year is actually going to be uh, the Tommy people. But, I mean, the, 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 when presentations are done at the convention, they're not done. At least they're not done at RAA. that's in the speaker agreements that they're there to promote the products. RAA has always been like that, Pete. They're yeah. good, honest people. Yeah. We're, we're always, we've always been like that. So, uh, so the point is, and look, let, let, let me, uh, since we're in the cage here, we're going around there, because you're, you're, you're a tough boy from Montana, so, you know, you could take it with these New York City slickers. 
I mean, what's the fact of the matter, Jim, is that these guys who are doing all that work and doing all that standards work that you're talking about, they're not all doing it for free. You know as well as I do, they're always driving agendas. There's the good guys that are in there that are trying to do it for the greater good and maybe, you know, more open-minded. But then there are others that are not and have secondary agendas and they're going to they're benefit from that. And, and, and look, I don't always think that that's necessarily a bad thing, to be quite honest with you. If people didn't have an agenda and didn't have a bias and didn't have a reason, they probably wouldn't be involved in standards. I mean, the, the one of the past presidents of uh, of uh, ASTM made a comment. He said the best standard setting process is a table of balanced biases. In other words, you have everyone with a bias, but you have balance. He says it makes for, it makes for great standard writing, which is the essence of consensus. Which is which, quite frankly, is was my point on this uh, dissenting viewpoint or opinion of minority opinion. If it's good enough for the Supreme Court, it should be good enough for the standard writing process. It actually, in my mind, would demonstrate consensus. That you went through the process and you said, "Hey, yeah, we had most people agree, but there's a majority opinion and there's a minority opinion." So I mean, that's where I'm coming from. That's my frame of reference, if you would. And uh, hey, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just saying you get in there and uh, and uh, you constantly try to push the envelope and make it better. And and look, I I appreciate the hard work that anyone does who does standards, and I think a lot of them get unduly criticized. I remember Stephen Spivak, and uh, he wrote a standards chapter for our WS manual in the, in the early days when Cliff and myself were involved in developing our program. And he called he called the guys who really do the work, the hard work of the standards, he called them the grunts, quote-unquote, you know, kind of an ineffectionate manner. And he says he should never underestimate those guys. Oftentimes, no one really appreciates the hard work that it does to get into the trenches to actually do the standards work. And those kind of people I have a lot of respect for. And... Um, you know, at the end of the day, Jim, we kind of go around and around, but, you know, probably 90% of the stuff, we all, we're on the same page on you and me anyway, aren't we? Agreed. Uh, Cliff, any final questions or comments? I'm good. I'm good. All right. Well, Jim, before we go, we always like to give you the last word. Any uh, final comments or questions? And, and I thank you so much for joining us. It was kind of short notice, and uh, we didn't get you the questions as early as I would like, but uh, I had a lot of fun and enjoyed being with you. Yeah, that's not not a problem at all. I just wanted to mention one thing. These these things are now online. They're digital. You can oh. get the standard subscription site at publications.iicrc.org, and you can get the IIC web store at webstore.iicrc.org. You can order up these standards. You can get yearly subscriptions to all of them, the standards, and and and, and uh, have them available on your darn uh, iPhone that you can just punch up. You can put in a, a question. They're text sensitive. You put in a question and, and get an answer, and I think they're just wonderful. you got to check that out. I'm glad you brought that up, Jim. It was in my notes, and I forgot, and I know Millie um, Washington and, and Howie were very excited about that, and I think a lot of the younger generation will be happy to see that, too. I mean, I, I still, you know, I'm the old school. I like to have a hard copy in front of me, but uh, it certainly does help to be able to search the document and or ask questions, and uh, especially when with this S500, which is, looks like it's about 300 pages here. Is, are the, refer the reference guides are on uh, electronic as well, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Standard and reference guide both, and they have a yearly subscription. You can get a premium subscription, and you can get back issues of standards and white papers and memos and uh, MOUs, all kinds of information by having a subscription electronic. We're moving into the 21st century. Nice. Very nice. Jim, thank you. Um, I, I've got a couple people that said thanks for the honest discussion by out. Jim. It's pretty cool stuff. Well, that was fun. 
Thanks to this week's guest, Jim Pearson, and of course to the Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli, for joining us for the roundup. To my co-host, the Z-Man, of course, at the controls, John, you gotta have faith. We've got a special show coming up on Tuesday, January 26th. We'll be live at noon Eastern from the Indoor Air Quality Association Conference and the ASHRAE AHR Expo in Orlando, Florida. So come back and join us live on the 26th. We'll also replay that show on the 29th, and uh, we'll be back in the studio on Friday, February 5th. So looking, and by the way, we've got a special show that week. We're going to do a preview of the PM 2.5 conference going on in D.C., sponsored by EPA. We've got the National Institutes of Health there, and uh, should be very interesting on the health effects of PM 2.5. We'll put the link up on the website to register for that conference. So most importantly, thanks to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back Tuesday, the 26th at noon Eastern with the next live broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.